Hey, hey, welcome to the Phil Drysdale Show. And this episode, we have a corker. We have Brian Murarescu, who wrote The Immortality Key and has been spending the last 12 years um, exploring the secrets of the classics of the ancient world um, and how a religion has been informed by psychedelics and it is going to be a fascinating conversation i hope you're looking forward to this i hope you're ready for this it might push you might push some of your boundaries but there is some astonishing evidence and real fascinating um uh, illumination on on early religion and how it has been uh shaped by different um substances and and i think it's really interesting to look at this stuff it's really fun to look at this stuff and i know a lot of you are as you are going through your deconstruction are uh, considering or, or have begun to experiment with different uh, substances as well and so you may be especially interested to know how those things may have played a role in early christianity um, certainly great greek and um, other um, civilizations and their religions as well and so i'm excited to get diving into that before we do just want to remind you you can support this podcast all that i'm doing to help people coming out of toxic religion um, all that kind of stuff. I do everything for free. You can support it over at Patreon, just patreon.com slash phildrysdale or phildrysdale.com slash partner. Um, to do, by doing so, you get access to private discussion group, um, monthly Zoom calls, and a few other perks as well. And so if you would like to do that, if you are able to do that, that would make a great deal to me. Um, I do this full time and I have no other income. Um, but there is never any need. Like I said, everything is always going to be free. Um, all right, let's dive into the conversation with Brian. How are you? Um, it's, it's been a, it's been a whirlwind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, how's the book launch gone? Well, uh, it's, uh, beyond my, my expectations, you know, you know, you're never quite sure. Uh, I think launching it on, on Joe Rogan certainly helped. Uh, but yeah. what's, what surprised, what surprised me is the reception outside of his audience, mm. uh, from, from all kinds of different sources and the mainstream news. And it's just, it's been wonderful, man. Right. That's really cool and and um, positive, um, you know, a bit polemic, a bit kind of uh, how dare you? What are you doing? What's Everyone, going on here? A bit know, mix, I've, or? I've been waiting for the how dare yous. Uh, to be totally honest, it's been ninety nine percent positive. Wow. Uh, as as we, you're about to find out over the next hour and a half, uh, I try to be very diplomatic, uh, both in the book. Uh, I try to be especially diplomatic when I, when I talk to people. Uh, in, in public yeah. about it, so yeah, I'm, I'm letting science lead the way here, and because of that, I really do think there, there's an opportunity for a serious discussion. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I'm I'm really excited. So, um, give you background. My background. I come from a Christian path. My 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 father was a pastor, but um, I have since evolved my spirituality. Um, I'm very interested in psychedelics. I've, I've partaken in psychedelics in the past, um, and oh, I found cool. them to be very helpful in spirituality. Um, but generally speaking, my job is, and, and this podcast, um, the audience, largely speaking, come from a background of leaving Christianity, exploring new forms of spirituality, or completely being done with it. But talking about people on their journeys that have left that, or talking with people that have different insights into Christianity or different ways of exploring spirituality. So I, I just, I jumped at the chance that your publicist messaged me and says, would you be interested in this? And I was like, oh, I've not heard of this guy. And your book, like the immortality key, I'm like, eh, what is this? I don't know. And I kind of clicked the link and like read the blurb and I was like, would I be interested in this? Yes. <laughs> so I, I was very excited about it. Um, 
and I'm trying to tell my wife all about it. I'm reading the book, and I'm like, oh, you know, this isn't. And she's just like, why do you like these things? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not sure my wife would be a, a purchaser of your book, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> but I, I love this kind of stuff, and I'm I'm really excited to introduce people to, um, like you're saying, that the science, the history um, of how different religions form, how they kind of evolve, that no religion is what it was, you know, a few months ago, never mind right. thousands of years ago. Um, right. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to dive into that. I, I know people that are really interested can dive into maybe some of your um, your bigger interviews, things like Joe Rogan's. I watched that um, when yeah. it first came out. Um, yeah. And I was like, isn't this the guy I arranged an appointment with? I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you didn't get into the meat for me when you were on Joe's I'm like you didn't you you kind of started tiptoeing into the kind of the the Christian kind of world but you didn't really get there right you got you you talked about like all kinds of like um, background stuff the the origins of um, you know uh, the kind of Greek myth and the Greek kind of um, religious kind of uh, world behind all the mythology and kind of maybe a bit more whatever Um, I really love that I love maybe the origins of that in itself maybe through kind of like um earlier um beliefs maybe stone age beliefs and things like that and okay uh, but but getting into the end so i wonder if you could maybe just give a a synopsis of maybe who you are what 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 book you wrote why you wrote it um and then maybe we can kind of hopefully not leave the beginning and the main kind of bulk of how you got here off the table but maybe skim through it and i'll just tell them go watch some other interviews but maybe dive into (laughs) more because i know we're we're tight on time and i want to respect your time so i would love to get into the kind of the more components of how did christianity get influenced by these earlier religions um and and this this religion with no name um because i think that would be the stuff that um i know for me i'm the most excited about um well me too uh, i think a lot of people listening would be really interested because i think it informs us even more today since we are whether we like it or not very formed and and uh evolved around this christian faith anyway just right. being in the west i i agree i think the, the world in general uh I'm, I'm, i'll say i'll say are we recording now are we starting now or no sure yeah go for it yeah yeah i'm always recording so no, but <laughs> I'll, my, I'll, I'll start when we can before we start i just wanted to tell you i mean the same and i'll repeat it but you know whether you're a christian or not you know you live in 2020 or at least most mm-hmm. of the folks who are listening to this which is anno domini and and I'll t- I'll tell the story there, but I mean this this is what Christian or non Christian alike. Well, we whatever can start happens. now if you if you want to just start it. Like go right. for it. It's, it's fine. I'm I'm very used to an informal soft start anyway. <laughs> okay, so here's uh, we're just gonna jump right into it then. So um, you know the, this book covers a lot of different territory. I go back twelve thousand years, uh, and, and I've been telling people that's that's kind of an artificial choice on on my part. It was very mm-hmm. artificial because I think this story could potentially go back tens of thousands of years, if not hundreds of thousands of years, if not hundreds of millions of years. Uh, I had this fascinating conversation with Lee Berger in South Africa, one of the world's leading paleoanthropologists. And we won't get into it just now, but the, you know what really fascinates me is, is how deep our relationship with plants and herbs and fungi mm. really goes, because they were here before us. You know, We're, we're the youngsters yeah. on the block. So when I say it was artificial, uh, I, I began looking at the sacramental use of these potions 12,000 years ago at the agricultural revolution, because it's that moment between the upper Paleolithic of the, of the high stone age into the Neolithic when everything changes. It's when we're leaving mm. the caves for the cities. You have Gobekli Tepe that comes out of nowhere. 
uh, in southern Turkey, the world's first temple. And there we begin to see traces of beer. But, you know, mm. you and I can quickly go through uh, the, the history there because the, the entire second half of my book is dedicated to Christianity. And as I was just about to tell you, whether you were raised in the faith or not, most of the folks who are going to be watching this are aware that it's the year 2020. Uh, that's Jesus plus 2020 years, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Uh, so, it, I, you know, uh, we don't really know the answer to this very fundamental question. How did a carpenter's son from Galilee transform the world? I mean, it's, yeah. that, it's that simple. How did an illegal cult, uh, very similar to a Greek pagan cult, which was equally illegal at the same time, the cult of Dionysus, how did this illegal cult from this neglected part of the empire transform the Roman world in 300, mm. 350 years? You know, I've read Rodney Stark's book. I've read every historian you can think of, Bart Ehrman, Elaine Pagels. I mean, I love the early Christian period that I call Paleo-Christianity. The most sure. honest answer that anybody can say is that we frankly don't know. There's a million reasons why this faith swept the world, which it did in no uncertain terms. Mm. Uh, and so I look at plants and herbs and these sacraments as just one tiny piece of the puzzle without, you know, blowing things out of proportion. Yeah. No, that's, that's it's fascinating to me. You know, I, I'm a big fan of uh, historical Jesus work, you know, people like Bart Ehrman and, and so on that you, you talked about. And it does fascinate me when you start to kind of go, OK, when we start tearing apart this narrative we have of this person is Jesus and go, OK, what can we be 100 percent, probably not 100 percent, closer to probably at least over 50 percent sure this probably happens the 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 options really get whittled down you know to, to yeah. who this person jesus was and, and and then even in the early church what can we really know uh, again we don't know much of the very early church you know we have a few early texts of didache or you know like maybe some of the more authentic texts of paul um but even then they're like they're from these subsets that as we're discovering in more recent years we you know we unearth a whole bunch of like uh writings and go holy crap a whole bunch of christians back then that we don't think are christians you know like <laughs> you know, we don't like those types of christians and it's like well they were there whether you like it or not we just didn't acknowledge yeah. them for the last kind of few <laughs> 15 16 17 1800 years you know we've just kind of gone oh no they don't they don't exist but it seems that they actually were maybe more plentiful than the Christians that did survive in a sense. And I think actually Judaism is a very similar story. The, the Jews that survived the 70 AD destruction and things like that, where it was a very specific kind of branch of Judaism that kind of evolved. But when we look through the ancient texts on Judaism, it was quite diverse. Um, mm. And I do, I just get fascinated by this whole era um, and reading your book and reading um, some of your hypothesis of what Christianity did look like it certainly for some people um it, it's it's a pretty wild ride you know if i was a good conservative christian boy which i'm far from um i, I would be scandalized by you know the descriptions of uh, some of these um these kind of pagan christian blended kind of um ceremonies and, and rites um so so how do we get it what what is the scene when we when we're coming into christianity because you, you've done a, a heck of a lot of work kind of trying to establish kind of um, what was the mystery of evolution. I don't know if that's maybe a good place to start, I, I guess, kind of framing the world that Christianity evolves from, but maybe kind of framing how that world became. Uh, I'm trying to think how many steps back to start because we can keep going back, right? <laughs> well, we, we can, let's start in classical Athens because it's not, it's not that far removed and it has a lot to do with the birth of Christianity. 
so mm. what, what, what can we say? You know, I've been using different adjectives in the next sentence that I'm about to say. And I, th I think I like the one that I've, I've landed on. It is impossible. It is impossible to understand the origins of Christianity without understanding Greek. And I mean that in, in, in every way you can possibly imagine. The ancient Greek language, ancient Greek culture, ancient Greek religion. Uh, there's a reason the New Testament is written in Greek and not in Hebrew. Uh, there's a reason that Jesus is born in Galilee, and certainly you know, the faith begins there, but it takes root mm. in the Greek-speaking part of the ancient Mediterranean. You know, Paul, the 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament, is writing in Greek to Greek speakers, like in Corinth or the Thessalonians, or the Philippians, all in Greece, by the way, mm. or the Ephesians, or the Galatians, or the Calatians uh, in Ionia, or, you know, uh, parts of Turkey, uh, and the Romans. Now, here's the, the, the even more interesting part, and then we'll talk about the ancient Greeks, but Rome at the time is Greek, Ro mm -hmm. and, and Rome and southern Italy. As, as you go south from Rome, uh, you enter this place called Magna Graecia, which is Great Greece. You know, from the 8th, 7th centuries BC, the Greeks were colonizing southern Italy. In fact, to this day, in 2020, you can hear people speaking Greco, which is this weird Greek dialect, and there are Italians uh, uh, with Greek blood running through their veins that can go back 2,700 years. I mean, you know, the you really have to think about who the Greeks were um, outside their political prowess. Uh, right. The cultural influence was was astronomical. And you know, in my in my case, just to give a brief intro, uh, you know, I was forced into learning Latin and Greek. You know, I didn't I didn't go looking for this stuff. Uh, I was very uh, uh, blessed to receive a scholarship from the Jesuits. So this this is a Jesuit background in classics talking. Um, I'm the first person in my family to go to college, uh, and the only reason I did that was because of scholarships. First from the Jesuits, and then from Brown University. In the United States, and I, I dedicated my teenage years and my twenties to studying Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, Arabic, and I fell in love with the ancient world. And so, you must have been I'm a real like, hoot to hang around, you know? Yeah, <laughs> what are you I'm studying right now? Oh, I'm just, you know, studying Latin and Greek and Sanskrit. It's like yeah, that's a conversation kid. killer. <laughs> I didn't have many friends in high school. I don't have many friends. I'm sorry, now. I don't mean to shit all over your discipline, but uh, <laughs> as someone that spent, I spent three days uh, a week, uh, at least two, three hours a day, um, working with a mentor, learning uh, Koine Greek. And I say learning Koine Greek, and I am not. I, I've probably forgot all of it anyway because I don't stay up to date. I try and read a little bit every now and again to try and keep some of it. Um, but it's an extraordinary discipline to, to learn a language, never mind multiple languages. Um, and, and you've got to you've got to want to on some level, right? I mean, you can't just kind of I don't know, maybe it's, it's a pretty, pretty interesting uh, person yeah. behind that story. I'm just I'm just like quite fascinated with that There's this person that is navigating their way through life and gone. I'm going to choose to study or well I've got this scholarship and yeah this is a good idea I'll study Latin and Greek and go into Sanskrit on the side <laughs> that's a that's an interesting mind to me well I mean so I, I again I, I, I try to be careful with my language but I, I will say this uh, you know I credit the classics I can say this with a straight face I credit the classics with saving my life mm. or, 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 or giving me a life I would not have gone to college if it weren't for Latin and Greek that's, I mean, I, I never could have afforded it. Uh, I mm. wasn't even looking at schools. I was a senior in high school at a prep school, preparing to go to college. 
and I wasn't doing college visits. Uh, you know, my, my parents never went, so it wasn't a priority at home. Uh, it, it sounds weird, but it wasn't on my radar sure. until the, these classics departments uh, started started talking to me when I was 17 awesome. years old. And, you know, I should have gone and done a PhD or gone to seminary. I really wanted to be a priest when I was growing up. Oh. And I got scared and I was tired of being broke, which is the absolute truth. And so I went to law school and became a lawyer. But, you know, I, to this, I'm obsessed with the ancient world and with Greek specifically, wow. which is why I say it's impossible to have this conversation without yeah. knowing Greek. And you mentioned Koine, which we can have a really fun discussion about, but uh, I'll shut up for now. <laughs> well, I, so was this a passion that was developed fairly early on through kind of going to, you know, a Catholic school, maybe being exposed to certain kind of classic traditions and things like that that you really latched onto? Or was it later on that you kind yeah. of grabbed a hold of that? Was it always in no, you? It was, it was super early. Yeah. I mean, and wow. at, the, at the very end of my book, I say I still consider myself a Christian, uh, which, may, which may sound strange after you read the book. Uh, but, you know, l like you, I, I'm, I'm really fascinated in this person, Jesus. And I didn't have mm. any, uh, any choice in the matter. I was raised Catholic. Went to, to, to yeah. 13 years of Catholic school. I went to a Catholic grade school starting in kindergarten. You know, I went to mass uh, every week for a long time. Uh, uh, you know, had the first communion and the whole thing was confirmed. And to be honest, to be totally honest, uh, I liked it. <laughs> You know, it was, uh, uh, nothing was, I, I never felt like anything was forced down my throat. Mm. It was a pretty laid back grade school. The Jesuits were even more uh, intellectual, understanding, progressive. I mean, uh, I feel very fortunate. The Christianity that I learned about was always this kind of free flowing, intellectualized version mm. of the faith. And I love the smell of incense and I love the stained glass windows. And I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I, I loved it from the very beginning. I loved it. There you go. What you need to do, man, is you need to make your millions, maybe off this book, and then you can jump over and become a priest. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm thinking about it. It's not. It's not off my radar yet. I love it. I love it. You could become. You man, you end up in the Vatican in the in the in the artifact rooms. You know, you could be a tour guide. You know, this is the the perfect blend for you or something. Um, That's kind of a dream come true. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah, there we go. There, I'm reading your book right now. So uh, I said to my wife, my wife's like, he's not going to test you. You know, you don't actually have to get to the end. And I'm like, I'm trying to get to the end. I'm on like page 360. I'm so close, but I run uh, out of you're, time. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. Um, but just to say, that's that's why I have not got to the end where you've kind of like made your confession of, oh, I'm still kind of Christian. Um, yes, a big but, confession yeah. in the last page, yeah. Okay, so let's rewind now because I do want to. I want to dive into the, the the content of your book as much as I, I I feel that we could talk about these kind of things for um, for hours. But this world is this 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 ancient Greek world is is much broader, much bigger than we think of today. Modern Greece, it's much more far spanning. Something I'm always fascinated about. Um, I know um, some historic. Um, uh, historians looking at the life of Jesus talk about Jesus in his region where he's growing up. It's a very Greek region, in that it's right there in the Decapolis, the the, the ten cities. The, wow. His local his local city would have been Sephoris, right? Or Se is that how you say it? Sephoris. Uh, Sephoris, Se yeah, Sephori today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but that was like a a, a light, a, a decent walk. But it, it, if he was, you know, from Nazareth, a place with probably about a hundred people in it it's unlikely he had much work to do there. He probably would have been working in this Greek city, exposed to Greek philosophy, Greek religion, you know, all these different things. It, it gets my mind racing, you know, and then you, and then people are running around calling him the logos, you know, John and things. And, and these are kind of Greek terms that um, 
Christianity is co-opting, is, is, is diving off. And so I think a lot of people really miss this, this world of, of um, Greece. So anyway, so I, I just am fascinated by that um, component. So yeah, pl- please continue. So, uh, okay, look, here's something interesting. If you know nothing about ancient Greece uh, or Greek, so you mentioned the word koine, and you know, mm. for, your, for your audience, koine in Greek just means common. And it, it, came, it came to mean the common form of Greek that was spoken around the ancient Mediterranean. Obviously, it comes from, from Athens, but more specifically, the reason Greeks spread, uh, to use a modern analogy, is because of Hollywood. You know how, like, mm-hmm. around the world, people watch Hollywood movies, and you can quote your favorite lines from films, and you have your favorite actors and actresses. So the theater in Athens, the theater of Dionysus at the, at the southern slope of the Acropolis, is where Koine is born. Well, it's not born mm-hmm. there, but, I mean, it's really, it's really where it kind of um, it explodes on the world. It was through people like Euripides, and Sophocles and Aristophanes. And what they were doing was not entertainment the way we think of entertainment. In the ancient world, the boundary between entertainment and religion uh, was, mm. was very porous, if not non-existent. And so at the theater of Dionysus, they would write these plays to curry favor with the God, right? And, and, mm. and the actors and actresses would put on the, the, the mask and makeup to really draw down these celestial powers, even these, even these dead ancestral powers. Carl Ruck, who I write a lot about in the book, uh, this yeah. 85-year-old professor at Boston University, uh, he, he credits the, the beverage that was served at that theater with helping to fuel whatever was happening there, again, which is not quite entertainment as we understand it. He talks about this potion called trima, and in Greek, trima is this, uh, it means rubbed or pounded. And Carl Ruck says it, it, it signifies the drugs that were pounded into this uh, theater wine for the spectators so that they could tune themselves to whatever the hell was going on on stage and vice versa. And to him, it was this, you know, this ecstatic event. That was theater. Wow. And the language spoken in that theater was koine. And that's how it explodes. And to this day remains the liturgical, the sacred language of the Greek Orthodox Church. So there's right. some there's some point in yeah, that's fascinating. I, 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 I think I, I, w- I was born to be in that time period. I, I would have loved that world. You know, like uh, me and my wife sit down to relax, and she's like, "Oh, what exciting! Like, you know, I don't know, rom com or an action adventure." And I'm like, "Oh, can we watch like a, a documentary or something that's quite philosophical? What about something where the main character dies, or like, you know, it's got some meat to it, and it's got these twists, and it's got spiritual undertone." That's my my bread and butter, and I I always feel like reading about these times. It's funny because my wife's the one with a degree in philosophy, you know, so she doesn't want to go anywhere near it. Um, but I mean, that world just seems so exciting to me. Um, even more so when we look at maybe some of the the, um, the spiritual components as well of what's going on. Because I think as well, when people think of Greece, um, we think of, or ancient Greece, we, we, we think of this time period that's kind of a big nebulous kind of time period as we're taught it in maybe school. Um, ancient Greece is kind of like a, a whatever kind of term that we can't really quite put our exact finger on, um, yeah. spanning hundreds and hundreds of years really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but we think of like mythology, we think of Zeus, we think of these kind of people. And I know you talked in a book, this kind of combination of like, when you look at the wisdom of the philosophers there, and, and, these, and, and even to call them philosophers, these people that are exploring metaphysics, but even also challenging our understanding of physics and chemistry and biology and such astonishing thinkers. 
And yet, I mean, we talk about this today, right? You know, how many atheists are going, oh, these crazy Christians, because they're just like not logical. They're not rational. They're not, you know, materialistic, reductionist. You know, we, if we just look at the science, it disproves your God. Um, and, and it's not something I ever thought about. When you mentioned it in the book, I was like, it is a bit weird that this community that so values, you know, this rationalism and, and rational thought believed in like, you know, these weird kind of demigods and all this kind of crazy stuff. Um, but it's, it, but I, I had not really come across this whole other kind of mysterious religion that is going on in this time period as well. That is a huge underpinning of Greek culture as well. It turns out that all these different philosophers are little side notes to it, you know, little, uh, oh yeah, I've been there, don't, no big deal, you know, don't, sh-, you know. Um, but there's this mysterious thing going on in Greece as well. I guess, can you kind of like elaborate on that? Because I guess that's the, the central kind of underpinning of of um at least maybe the main component of what's kind of leading up to what christianity is maybe starting to pull from greece is that is that fair to say that's 100 percent fair um and i'll just uh, i'll quote a quick line from the gospel of mark uh when someone asked jesus why he speaks in riddles because jesus does speak in riddles he speaks in power we call them parables right the good right. samaritan and the mustard seed and so forth that you and your audience are aware of when 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 the question is posed to jesus why he does this the answer is, uh, uh, these are musteria. These are secrets. These are secrets to be confided only to the initiated and not to be communicated by them to ordinary mortals. And that's, that's the actual definition of musteria, which wow. is mysteries. Uh, so 100% there were secrets in early yeah. Christianity, okay, uh, as it's born into this Greek world. The, the question is, what were those secrets? You know, at what level, to whom were they communicated? But, but even, even you know, um, uh, a rather boring read of the canonical Gospels is already telling you that, that there, are, there are secrets involved in the faith, mm. things that were reserved for the inner circle. Th- that concept comes from ancient Greece and what you were referring to. Now, and, and here's the big question I pose in the book. Does it really make sense that the people who drafted the blueprints of Western civilization and birthed all those things that you just mentioned, and, and I'll, I'll add democracy, the arts and sciences, sure, yeah. philosophy, the very concept of a university, what we're doing right now, Socratic question and answer, does it make sense that they got everything right, like everything, and somehow couldn't figure out the meaning of life? It, it, it doesn't make sense. They were obsessed with the meaning of life. They were obsessed mm. with the concept of death. And spoiler alert, they did not think that Zeus was on a mountaintop hurling thunderbolts down at, at us hapless mortals. So the folks who went to Eleusis, and this is probably the most famous of the mystery traditions. It runs from 1500 BC to the fourth century AD when it's obliterated under the Christianized Roman empire. Uh, You have uh, the best and brightest of Athens and Rome going to become initiates into this mystery cult. Folks like Plato, Pindar, Sophocles, centuries later, Cicero, the Roman order in the first century BC says Eleusis is the most exceptional and divine thing that Athens ever produced, right? So not the sciences, mm. not democracy. Eleusis is the thing that holds everything together. Marcus Aurelius, centuries after him, completely agrees. In fact, he rebuilds Eleusis in the second century AD when it's partially uh, destroyed by some barbarians. How dare they? Uh, so the, the point being, this, this, this was, I call it, this is the real religion, or this is part of the real thinking of the ancient world. And what did they go there to do? 
they, they, they made this pilgrimage 13 miles from Athens to Eleusis, which today is just a small town. And when you visit the archaeological site, it's just these battered chunks of marble whipped by the winds. But what was once there was this temple to Demeter, the goddess of the grain. And Plato and everybody else would go there once in their lives and only once for the full initiation. And they would drink some kind of potion called the kukion. We don't know what it mm. was. But after drinking it, they would enter this temple, have a vision, and that's almost universal in what little testimony survived. And most importantly, they would conquer death. They would become immortal. Only those who had seen what happened inside Demeter's temple uh, were guaranteed life after death. Uh, here's the thing. It was all secret. So we don't know much. All we have are hints and clues. The, the, the penalty for revealing what you saw in that temple was nothing less than death. You know, so which, by the way, I laughed so hard when I read that in the book because I'm like, right, hold on. So you take your potion, whatever it is, wine, beer mixed with some sort of psychedelic, who knows, whatever. You take it, you have this incredible vision. You go, oh my gosh, I've conquered death. I'm no longer scared of dying. All right, well, don't say anything or we'll kill you. Oh, okay, I won't say anything. (laughs) I'm like, wait, hold on. This seems like maybe they hadn't quite conquered death if the threat of death was still enough to keep this thing secret for, you know, 1900 years. Um, to me, I was like, what? Um, but I, I feel like you missed a great opportunity for a good joke there. Um, I will say, by the way, I laughed so many times in your book because you blindsided me with something really funny. Um, cause it's, it's quite, um, heavy. I mean, reading history and ancient, you know, um, opinions of like this Greek term and how it could be interpreted or whatever. And then every now and again, you would just drop this joke. And I, I don't, dude, you're a funny guy. It, it cracked me up. So whatever's, whatever's on the horizon for next book, more, more comedy, man. That was funny. I, it cracked me you up. Know what? But My I thought that was, a, that was a moment of comedy that was just like, you glossed right over it. And I was like, dang, that um, is know, funny. Man, now, now I'm kicking myself. My, my favorite line in the book about the wedding at Cana is my, uh, my paraphrase of John's gospel. Uh, dude, most people don't serve the good shit when everybody's already drunk, which is yes. a pretty good paraphrase, by the way. That's exactly yeah. what's happening. That's, that's what's going on. And, and this is something, so uh, we're, we're bouncing around here. This is, this is me that I bounce around. But this is something, so the, the hypothesis is that this drink that is um, being drunk, um, this mysterious potion, is some form of mixed wine, uh, probably, is that uh-huh. is that fair to say that on the whole, or maybe say, some sort of mixed beer? Yeah, probably or a mixed beer. At this point, mixed beer, yeah. Okay. Yeah, at, at this point, so I mean, at this point, we're talking like classical Athens, so fifth, fourth century BC. Um, although the hint, the clue that we have comes from the hymn to Demeter, which is more like seventh century BC. Uh, this it's this four hundred and ninety six line poem that's discovered in seventeen seventy seven, and it's like the origin myth of how these mm. mysteries came to be. And it's the story of Demeter searching for her daughter Persephone and all this, you know, all these fertility overtones. But at some point in the poem, you know, Demeter, Demeter looking for her daughter who's been abducted to the underworld, she lands at Eleusis and she hasn't eaten or drunk anything in nine days and nights. And the king and queen offer her a beverage. They offer her wine, right? Which which makes sense, by the way, it's Greece in the fifth century BC, right? I mean, or the seventh century. Uh, But she says, no, she's the lady of the grain. And so she asks for a very special potion and she gives you the ingredients in Greek. And she says the ingredients of this potion uh, are barley, water, and mint, which, you know, I went to, I flew to Munich, Germany to talk to one of the world's leading beer scientists about this. And, you know, without overstating it, it kind of reads like a rudimentary recipe for beer. 
this barley-based beverage. Right. We don't know what the mint's doing there. Uh, although Minty I'll, beer, I'll just what we want. Minty. You know, brush your teeth, have a swig. You've basically got, you know, the, this Demeter's like amazing uh, concoction. <laughs> exactly. Why not, man? But so here, here's the thing. In, in, in 1978, um, Albert Hoffman, who is uh, uh, no slouch, one of the world's leading chemists, who discovers LSD in 1938, he discovers mm. LSD from this natural fungus uh, uh, called ergot, which is uh, which pops up all over these cereal greens. And so, by mm. the time the 70s come along, and he's talking to Gordon Wasson, uh, this well-known ethnomycologist, and Carl Ruck, whom I mentioned earlier, the three of them team up on this book, and they claim at the height of the war on drugs, by the way that this potion uh, actually is referring not to barley, but to ergotized barley, that somehow right. the Greeks must have figured out essentially how to create LSD beer. And as you can imagine, mm. it doesn't go down very well in 1978. It, they didn't read the room. You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like I, I say to my wife when we're at shopping and like, and she sneezes and I'm like, dude, read the room. Like it's 2020. You can't sneeze. Okay. We're going to get lynched. <laughs> Like, we're just trying to get groceries. Don't do that. Um, these guys are like, let's write a book about LSD, about how the ancients were taking LSD. E- effectively, I know it's not yeah. quite the same. But, I mean, this is quite fascinating to me. Like, from my understanding, and, and, and to be fair, my understanding was massively increased from your book, but I'd imagine the, the vast majority of people reading, uh, reading <laughs> watching us, there's no transcript, sorry, guys, Um are not going to have much understanding of uh, ergo or, or general cereals, but hardly. Um, to, to my understanding, though, that's very dangerous on the whole, um, or it can be very dangerous. And, and so um, it would require quite a bit of intentionality to be allowing this to grow on the grains. You'd, you'd kind of be writing off the grains for use in other areas by allowing this kind of like almost an infection to, to spread amongst your grain. Um so they are basically brewing something that would maybe cause some sort of psychedelic near-death experience, basically poison you on some level, um, potentially at least. Um, A a possible risk of death if they don't get it quite right. Um, It it, it seems like a a very high-risk proposition um, (laughs) for these kind of like random people 13 miles outside of Athens to be kind of um, concocting. But what fascinates me is this does, this not, uh, this isn't a location based secret, right? I mean, people understand ergo across the world uh, on the whole, right? I mean, this can happen in most types of cereals, kind of barley, wheat, things like that. Uh, Am I right in understanding that? And so why do you think it's so prevalent in this kind of specific area in Greece that everyone, because everyone would travel. I mean, it's 13 miles outside of Athens, but there's records of people like, you know, well outside of, uh, you know, that area doing this pilgrimage. I mean, people traveled very far to to do this thing when presumably similar experiences may have been um, certainly possible, if not happening outside. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know what, now you have me thinking on the fly here. It's, it's interesting. You know, Sorry. I mean, the, no, no it's, I, I like this. The, the, the honest answer, the honest, I mean, anyone would say this. We don't know mm. why Eleusis becomes Eleusis. Uh, you know, Karl Ruck, even in the 70s, was, and, and Hoffman were raising the possibility, you know, was it something about the barley that grew there, you know, or whatever cereals? Was, was, was there something unique about whatever was happening there and, and the kind of alkaloids that were present in that ergot, right? So, so ergot, sure. we think, 
at least in, in, in the 70s, had something like 30 different alkaloids in it. And th these are, uh, you know, some of them, some of them are uh, very toxic. Uh, you know, ergotism is not a fun condition to have. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, fight, the, the flights of fancy are far less common than things like gangrene and convulsions. Uh, you know, there, there were outbreaks of ergotism across the Middle Ages and so famous, in fact, that it became known as the ignis sacred, the holy fire. Uh, and, uh, you know, people uh, don't have a good time generally on, on Urga. Yeah. And so the whole thing. Hypothesis... They don't then go, that was wild. I'll tell you what, I'm booking my <laughs> ticket over to Elysium. <laughs> Let's go do it again. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it, in, in all fairness, I mean, that does, uh, in my, most people I talk to that have done psychedelics um, will tell you it was profound, will tell you it was very important for them. Uh, I mean, you, you've, quoted different studies from John Hopkins and different um, very well-established, um, you know, research communities that have done research on people. And they, and they say again and again, that was like the most significant spiritual experience of my life or maybe the top five experiences of my life. Um, but quite a lot of those people do not sign up for a second dose. Um, and, and I was reading just, uh, I think I read a study the other day where they looked at people that had had a negative experience on psychedelics and they'd had a bad trip basically. And they said, to these people, they waited five years and they basically then polled them all and said, like, was it a good experience long term? And what's fascinating is 100% of them said, yes, it turned out to be a good thing for me. 100%. I, I can't remember that. Wow. It was not a huge case. It was like, I think it was like 38 people or something. But yeah. still wow. really astonishing to get that kind of percentage. Um, and so there's this kind of weird dynamic going on there where it, psychedelic uh, experiences, hallucinogens, um, these kind of like on some level poisonings uh, don't necessarily have to be a, a good experience to be a good experience. Um, you know, you can almost have, it's like getting cancer can be a very profoundly positive experience if you survive and you get through it and you look back and go, Oh, that was the most formational period of my life. I wouldn't take huh. sign up for it again, but huh. you know, so I, I'm often intrigued by those components. Um, but so wow. this is a thing that's going on and people are people are traveling to experience this. What well, one thing that fascinates me as well is is ergo seems like in a world where they were mixing stuff into wine and beers. They they were doing this all over the place and this is really so this didn't surprise me even in my Christian upbringing we were told about mixed wines. Um really? because in the Bible, it talks about mixed wine at certain oh. points. I can't remember where is it, the Psalms and different things like that. You, you know, you're even better than a mixed wine or whatever. And, and and I remember my pastor at one point going, oh, well, in, in the ancient world, they had different strengths of wines and they put things into wine to make them stronger. They'd be more alcoholic um, and you'd have wow. less alcoholic, which we kind of understand there's more and less alcoholic drinks in the ancient world because that's all people were drinking because you get killed by the water usually. Um, but... Um, the concept of mixed wines, I was like, okay, yeah, but I'd never thought, oh yeah, and let's chuck in, I don't know, Aminara Mascara, <laughs> like Amanita Mascara, you know, something very hallucinogenic, let's chuck that into the wine and see what happens. But it does yeah. seem interesting to me that like, um, in a world where they're mixing things in, they aren't mixing more controllable things than something like Ergo as well, which is fascinating to me. Um, right. One well, of the things you mentioned is like, uh, in the Jewish world there was a lot of evidence for the mixing um wines which obviously I, I even knew of that to some degree but there may be evidence of them mixing um intoxicants into their wine is is that true could you go into that a little bit as well because that i'm sure would fascinate people with a christian bent to okay. see if there's a tradition in there somewhere it's okay it, it gets a bit a bit wonky 
uh, let's so even even before the New Testament and as the Judeo-Christian you know tradition is is getting going, um, you know I was interested in the science, right? And so I can point you to lots of literature that talks about mixed wine, you know, both biblical and extra biblical. Mm. Uh, but I think I think what's really compelling for people to hear is that there are scientists looking at this stuff too, and there have been really impressive discoveries in and around the Holy Land uh, for spiked wine. And the one that I point to is by uh, Andrew Coe, who's currently at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. In 2014, he releases this paper, this great discovery of the world's oldest wine cellar. You can Google it right now, uh, Tel Cabri, it's K-A-B-R-I. And at Tel Cabri, which was this Canaanite palace, roughly 1700 BC, they unearth all kinds of wine jars. They're subjected to what's called gas chromatography mass spectrometry, GCMS. And that's where you identify all the volatile compounds uh, that have made their way into that wine. By the way, 1700 BC, this stuff this survives. Is, really this stuff incredible. blows my mind. It blows my mind. It's just it's, astonishing. I mean, really, really incredible. And so what they found there is that it wasn't just wine. It was wine that was spiked with uh, honey, storax, terebinth, cypress, cedar, juniper, mint, myrtle, and cinnamon. And I'm not reading that. Mm. That's, right, that's right here. So you, you got uh, that from, you've written that a few times. You've said it a few times. <laughs> I brush my teeth and say that. Oh, man. <laughs> so it's really, it's really interesting that, you know, uh, that, that long ago, we have actual archaeochemical evidence for the spiking of wine. Now, as you heard the ingredients there, um, you didn't hear anything, you know, explicitly psychedelic, but I talked to Andrew sure. Coe at MIT a lot about this, and, and he and his colleagues are obsessed with this stuff. He does think that that many ingredients in wine that old absolutely speaks to, I'll quote him, a sophisticated understanding of the botanical landscape and this ability to, to balance out um, uh, palatability, uh, preservation, and psychoactivity. You know, so you hear mm. things like, uh, like the terebinth would have, would have helped resonate the wine so it didn't spoil into vinegar. But then you hear things like, like honey or cinnamon, or at least cinnamaldehyde, enhancing the flavor profile. The juniper, I'm not sure which juniper it was, probably not psychoactive, but right. you know, the, okay. the, the, case is, the case is building that you can throw this stuff in there. And when you do look at the literature, uh, the literature is even more explicit that the Greeks absolutely knew how to spike their wine with very uh, powerful plants, uh, including things like henbane, uh, mandrake, black nightshade, mm. all these witchy nightshade plants. We have that in the literature from Dioscorides in the first century AD at the exact same time that the gospels are being written. Yeah. So again, even if this wasn't, um, even if the Jews maybe were more uh, puritanical and didn't, didn't do any psychedelics in their wine, they just drank the weird, crazy honey, cinnamon, you know, juniper wine. Um, even if that was the case, you know, someone like Jesus growing up exposed to a very Greek culture in, you know, the Decapolis in that world probably would have been exposed to people that did spike wines in maybe more of an extreme way maybe not in exactly the same way as as the mysterious wine that everyone was you know whispering about but certainly in other ways that made wine much more intoxicant much more uh at least potentially uh, psychoactive yeah. and there's one thing i didn't mention and, and and there's two reasons for that one is everything we've talked about we we absolutely know that the mysteries of the very Greek Dionysus were present in Galilee before, during, after the life of Jesus. Something mm -hmm. else that's going on, and this helps to connect 
that Canaanite wine I just mentioned uh, that Andrew Coe discovered, uh, what, what, what connects that to the time of Jesus in and around the Holy Land is something called the Marzea ritual, uh, M-A-R-Z-E-A-H, if you want to Google it. Uh, it's relatively understudied. Uh, it was this other ritual cult phenomenon that was there from the Canaanites, uh, and it's in the Ugaritic literature. Uh, it makes its way to the Babylonians, to the Nabataeans on the other side of the Dead Sea. It's, it's all over the southern Levant there. And it's essentially this ritual feast for the dead. You could even say a ritual feast with the dead. And mm. it, it, it is mentioned in the Old Testament. They talk about this, this, this wine called feasting for the dead. Uh, and it does make its way into Judaism. And there's, there's even some archaeological finds of uh, wine decanters and amphora found in and around burial sites of Jerusalem. Uh, there were some Jewish communities that were using this ritual or something like it to commune with the dead. And this is something that pops up again and again and again, including in early Christianity. Yeah. Something that intrigues me is what are the um, kind of social economical kind of dynamics behind these things before? Because Christianity very much became a movement of the, the everyday poor, certainly women, all these different dynamics. And I know that, um, you know, the mysteries of, of uh, Elysium, Elysius, uh, they're they're very woman centric as well. It's certainly as far as who's dishing out, who's preparing things like. That. Um, but certainly, you know, we list off people that maybe that did these pilgrimages. Certainly, they're not going to be the the bottom uh, feeders. They are kind of the one percent. These these very influential people. You know, Marcus Aurelius. You know, these philosophers. You know, um, if not in wealth, certainly in in their influence and things like that. Obviously, you know, poor Steve, you know, probably not many Steves in ancient Greece. Um, he uh, he probably isn't going to write something that's going to be propagated and forward, you know, and, and kept for another 2,600 years. So it's unlikely if he did go, he's going to write about it and it's going to happen. But but are the are the poor involved in this? Is this um, something that was happening for everyone? Or is this something that initially starts out as a very exclusive kind of right um, what, what's going on with these dynamics? Because I know that's something that was a huge dynamic around Jesus and this, this cult movement of Christianity was it was a kind of like, screw you guys, we're, we're here and we're going to yeah. have our own religion. We're going to have our own thing. Um, yeah. And we don't need your elite Pharisees and Sadducees and we don't need the Romans who are up, down our backs. We're, we're good. Um, so yeah. how, how did this religion operate, you know, or, or, or maybe um, this cult that's coming out of the kind of Canaanite tradition how did they um, operate at that, that time? Man, that, that, that is the question. That's an awesome question. That is the question. Uh, I know I'm it, asking you lots of questions. I'm not expecting definitive answers. I know that we're talking in a world of grays. Um, and so, no, but yeah. that's the, I mean, <laughs> I, I learned a lot about that in, in the book. I mean, that, that is the question. Again, at, you know, a, a little while ago, we said that it's impossible to understand early Christianity without the Greek. I think it's equally impossible to understand the socio-cultural and political dynamics of what's happening. So, and, and I'll use the evidence that we've been talking about. So, so think about it. The, that, that, that spiked wine from the Canaanites was at a, uh, it, it, that was palatial wine. Okay. Th th these are the royal families of the ancient Near East. That was not wine for the everyday Steve. Uh, right. and, and before the Canaanite before, Steve wasn't stockpiling like <laughs> shit tons of wine in a basement somewhere. No. <laughs> exactly. And, and nor, nor was the Egyptian Steve. 1,500 years before that, there's another find I talk about in the book, an archaeochemical find uh, from Egypt, 3150 BC. It's a wow. very similar um, 
death-involved ritual wine that we find uh, at Abydos in Egypt that we think belonged to, to Scorpion the First. Um, that's also spiked with lots of plants and herbs, and I won't list them out. But when you when you think about this tradition, you have the Egyptian pharaohs, and then this tradition of spiked wine goes into the Near Eastern elite. Uh, the Marseille ritual I mentioned was also fairly wealthy, aristocratic, land-owning, vineyard-having people in the Southern Levant who could afford, right? They had the time sure. and leisure, first of all, to grow the wine, Second of all, to you know, drink it with their dead ancestors and do all this stuff. And so what's happening? Jesus comes along. Obviously, it's, you know, and, and the best Roman historians, mainstream is right about this. I mean, Christianity spoke to women and it spoke to the poor. It's, it, yeah. it's that simple. It spoke to lots of people, but it especially spoke to them. Uh, and, you know, there's another God in the ancient Greek tradition who was doing the same thing. Dionysus, the same Dionysus mm -hmm. we're talking about. He was a monopoly buster. Okay, so Eleusis is kind of in that uh, that lineage of the you know the, the Egyptian pharaohs, the Near Eastern elite and aristocrats. Eleusis is kind of similar. Uh, you're not supposed to celebrate those rites outside Eleusis. There were two hereditary Greek families who controlled everything. You know, mm. the, the Greek world came to them. It wasn't the other way around. So things were strictly controlled in Greece uh, for the, these rites uh, of Demeter and Persephone. Dionysus comes along and says, you know, everybody wants a piece of this. And there's this famous scandal called the profanation of the mysteries um, in the fifth century BC, where wealthy Athenians are imitating, profaning the mysteries in their dining rooms. And it's clear mm -hmm. in the ancient source that they're drinking wine along with this profanation. Uh, and from there, you see this potion and these magical wines escape to the forests and the mountains. Dionysus is an outside god. Demeter and Persephone demand you come to their temple. So already you see this dynamic of the rich and the poor, the mm. rustic and rural versus the, uh, the very bureaucratized state-run administered cult at Eleusis. Mm. And what's really important is that Jesus follows in that same tradition. But what's the most interesting part of that thing? You know, when Jesus came along, when the Greek-speaking Christians, the earliest ones, first century AD, when they heard about this, what they would have heard was a phenomenal innovation. So... Dionysus is breaking that monopoly, taking the magic potion out to these rustic outdoor churches. What Dionysus did not do was take it into the dining room. Okay, now think of Da Vinci's mm. Last Supper. What do you think of when you think of the Last Supper? Jesus was taking that Dionysian uh, potion, I would argue, according to some Christians, and domesticating it. Jesus had domesticated the mysteries. And wow. you didn't have to fly off to the forest to drink it. In your dining room, you find your wine, you find what Karl Ruck says is the secret of secrets. You find your recipe maker, your formula handler, which typically were women, both for the Greeks and for the early yeah. Christians, and Bob's your uncle. So, I mean, we might be jumping ahead here, but I, I, I find this fascinating because, you know, we, we look at, okay, you need someone that understands something like Ergo or like um, one of these psychoactive or maybe multiple psychoactive components to mix in and what maybe to mix in with that to level it out a bit or whatever it is you need, you need someone that really has quite a, a profound kind of knowledge on a kind of chemical and biological level certainly for the time um i'm sure today we could do some sort of analysis and quickly go oh let's isolate that alkaline and put it in and we'll be fine yeah. um but you know back in the day this is pretty pretty intense what's fascinating to me is like i can understand i've got a temple 
um, at Elysius. I'm, 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 we're making big batches of stuff. People are coming in to visit. They're doing their pilgrimage. We're like, all right, here you go. Here's a little tablespoon of that. Go and, you know, have your experience and, you know, someone will walk you through it and see you later. You know, don't talk or we'll kill you. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, if, if, if the theory is that um, similar mixed wines um, are being used in the early church and they're being used in any Christian home, certainly not maybe all Christian homes, maybe that you would go to your local kind of hub of, of a few Christian homes, um, but certainly, you know, one in 10, 20, 30, 40 groups is, is doing this. This is a massive operation of which people need to understand how it works. They need to resource these fairly um, hard to find potentially, or at least not common enough that everyone is already doing this um, or has stumbled into this. And right. it's, it seems like a huge, like kind of like jump that the early church is suddenly like, what, what causes this, this, this sudden availability? I mean, it, I, I, I'm presuming the theory is that Jesus, I mean, you talk about this, Jesus and his parallels to, um, is it Dionysus, if I'm saying that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the parallels are really fascinating. So I don't know, maybe you could talk about that, but the, Jesus is coming on a scene and at some point is going, all right, guys, try this wine. And people are going, holy crap, this is like, I feel like I'm with God or, you know, whatever, like having these profound experiences. Um I, I'm just intrigued how it goes from right, right. Suddenly Jesus is going, right. I'm basically this temple that's producing this stuff and giving it out. Well, Jesus as a mobile operator can probably go swing by with his little, uh, you know, his like trailer, you know, <laughs> Jesus's mixed wines. Um, shh. Um, but how does it suddenly go from that to like, you know, everyone around, you know, everyone and their mom's doing this. It's gone from like this super secretive, super hard to replicate system to this radically um, prevalent, thing happening throughout the kind of the empire um but but maybe it is best to kind of backtrack a little bit and kind of maybe draw these parallels before we move too far into the christian story um i just i, I don't want to skip that because I'm, I'm really i feel like that's a huge component that um so far um i haven't felt you satisfied me in the book up to page 340 <laughs> pages or whatever i'm like no I, I need to know how did this happen though how did we suddenly get so much and it's probably the answer is we don't know this is like two thousand years ago <laughs> like you know would you want to get on the live stream um yeah anyway sorry um so dionysus and jesus can you kind of go into the parallels here because i feel like people gloss over this and it's and it's a huge component i think a lot of christians get rattled when they hear these kind of things you know these kind of parallels in faith and and things like right. that right okay this is now now we're cooking with grease uh, let's, let's, sorry that let's was a long some... rambling i gave you a lot of things to pick on but... <laughs> let's let's start let's start with dionysus and okay so how do i start this comment so in general, this is referred to as the pagan continuity hypothesis. Um, and it's the basic idea that some elements of obviously pagan Greek religion found their way into early Christianity. Um, that, that It's not that controversial. As a concept, it's not that controversial. And I often mention this paper from 1950. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself wrote a paper entitled The Influence of the Mystery Religions on Christianity. You can Google it and, and read it uh, over the next 10 minutes. Uh, it's, a, it's a really brilliant paper, and he himself follows on decades and decades of more scholarship that goes back at least to the late 19th century, this pagan continuity hypothesis. 
Um, this, this was not crazy stuff. What's, what's crazy is this psychedelic twist that enters mm. the scene in the 1970s. I think it begins probably with John Allegro, uh, Sacred Mushroom and the Cross in 1970. Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck get a little crazier in 1978. Again, the height of the war on drugs. But the, the idea that, that Dionysus and Jesus had this relationship was not controversial. As a matter of fact, the church father, Justin Martyr, openly admits it. And rather than deny it, he says that it was a trick. It was a satanic mm. trick. That this, this Dionysus- Oh, sneaky. Yeah, sneaky, sneaky Satan, you know, uh, um, duped these Greeks into thinking that there was this Dionysus. And even though he comes before Jesus, he's not the real Jesus because Dionysus is just too damn close to Jesus, which is the truth. Right. Uh, you know, so there's got to be some about, sort of evil archetype, kind of like shadowy kind of figure, but not quite right. They're so similar that in Justin Martyr's mind, the only explanation for this similarity is that Satan is trying to dupe humanity. So, I mean, Mm. this was not something that was lost on people at the time. This, it would not have been lost on the earliest Christians. Uh, For, um, I can list 10 examples. Let's go through just just a couple. Um, uh, You know, so you have this uh, this son of God, born of a virgin, who introduces wine into his mysteries, right? And no, I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about Dionysus. Uh, Mm. In 405 BC, one of the, the best preserved uh, records we have of the myth and cult of Dionysus is Euripides the Bacchae. Uh, and the very first line, like not in the middle, like line one, Dionysus is referred to as Pais Dios, the son of God. Uh, it's, mm. you, you can't miss it. And, and throughout, the, throughout the play, you see Dionysus doing the kinds of things, or at least the followers of Dionysus doing the kinds of things that, that, that Jesus would talk about. Um, uh, and even outside the Bacchae, you have things like this water to wine miracle, right? And I really mm. focus on the Gospel of John because John's Gospel really uh, takes a hold of this Dionysian Jesus. As a matter of fact, there's a very respected scholar, Dennis McDonald, who wrote a book a couple of years ago called uh, The Dionysian Gospel. And I quote it a lot in my book because the correspondences between the Greek of Euripides and other ancient sources and the Greek of John's Gospel are just over overwhelming. Uh, it's, mm. it's really bizarre stuff. So water to wine. In the Greek district of Elis on the western Peloponnese, there was this annual tradition around the Epiphany, January 5th, January 6th, the exact same date that the Christians adopted as the Epiphany for Jesus. And on that Epiphany day, the priests would lay out these, these water basins in the temple, shut it up, come back the next morning, and voila, it had all been turned to wine. You know, so when when someone heard about the wedding at Cana, a Greek speaker who knew their history uh, would have immediately recognized this as a Dionysian reference. As a matter of fact, there are scholars who refer to that miracle specifically as, quote, the signature miracle of Dionysus. And throughout there, from there to the very end of John's gospel, when, when Jesus calls himself the true vine, ampelos in Greek, it's the exact same words that you'll find in Euripides, the Bacchae, all these shout outs to the Ampelos. And so, I mean, there are dozens of examples, and those are just a few of them. But the, the, the basic point is that it would not have been lost on anybody, even remotely familiar with Dionysus, that John is saying, here's the second coming. Sure. And I guess it's intriguing to me when we look at maybe authentic statements of Jesus, um, they are few and fast, uh, far between, really, uh, within the Gospel of John compared to the, the earlier synoptics. Maybe 
there's still plenty in there, but there there's less so just maybe by it being a later state stage, maybe by them trying to reframe Christianity because it's not worked out maybe how the early church thought it was going to. They kind of probably thought Jesus was coming back at some point or and it's like, oh, he's not. Maybe we have to maybe make this a bit more of a uh, mythology, maybe some divinity. There's all kinds of arguments around why by the time we have the Gospel of John, the way Jesus is framed is so different. Even his birth narrative, it's like, oh, we don't actually, you know, let's make him like this, you know, eternal being that was before a birth, you know, and that doesn't really come into play so much in the synoptics and and, and different yeah. components. Is there, I mean, is there a possibility that I see, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing Christianity, right? I'm doing my colonialism thing. I'm just walking up to Rome going, hey, we've got a new religion for you. This is how you're going to do it. And they're going, oh, we've got this idea, like on the 5th to the 6th, there's this religion, this religious component where we turn water into wine and it's a miracle from Dionysus. And you go, oh yeah, um, Jesus turned water into wine. It was on the 5th and 6th as well. We'll call that the Epiphany. We'll call it the same name, but what it is, it's about Jesus. It's a bit like the, Christi- uh, the Christmas tradition, right? We all know Jesus wasn't born in December, but um, it's like, well, actually, I mean, we really have no idea when Jesus was born, actually, to be fair, but... Um, but it's, it's quite likely you've got a one in 12 shot um, that he wasn't born in December. Um, and yet we have all these imageries of like, oh, the, the sun God, and this is how it's worshipped. And you go, oh, you want a, a son of God, a, a sun God, you want this thing? Right, cool. We've got Sunday. We'll do it on that day. We've got, you know, Christmas Day. Sure, let's do 25th. Oh, you have a day where you're worshipping demons. We'll have a day before where we worship, you know, we chase all the demons away. And on that day, we'll, we'll worship saints. It's kind of this like cultural appropriation with a twist of like, and now you can't do it anymore because we've ruined it. We've kind of made it Christian. Um, is, is there a component where there's less of an intentionality of we're trying to make Jesus... And Dionysus the same thing, but more uh, we're trying to silence one religion and just allow our religion to dominate. I, I guess because that would be kind of the the general argument I would hear from historians that aren't trying to silence this stuff. Because I think there's a way when you approach kind of conservative Christians that are doing kind of the work that you do, uh, that do kind of historical Jesus work, they quickly kind of like do some weird gymnastics around the topic to make jesus still this exact person and every page of the bible said that and did this but someone that's really doing the work isn't going to do that because it discredits all the good work that you're going to do so they do go okay how would we approach it and i think a lot of people would i guess the jump to assume ah yes this is Jesus was trying to replicate Dionysus. You know, Jesus was trying, was repli- was still carrying out the same sort of ministry and stuff. That seems like a less common jump I've certainly come across than, oh, it was Christianity just being kind of its dominant self, kind of trying to, you know, overwrite history, overwrite other people's religion, co-opt other people's religion. You know, like when Paul comes into... Um, uh, whereas it's Marcel and he quotes the poet and he says, oh, you know, you, 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 you speak to this unknown God. And he's like, well, the unknown God's called Jesus. There we go. Problem solved. And you're like, kind of, but I, I don't know if you could just, you just erase their gods. And, and Jesus is that God. I mean, can you do that? But that's kind of like, I guess, how a lot of people would approach this. Um, I guess, how, how do you kind of approach, how do you put forward your argument to say that it, it's it's stronger than that there's something there's something more than just people co-opting something that was already there or trying to line up something and make it match as a domination rather than a kind of like um 
evidence that the same thing is happening in these two different cultures. Yeah, I think, and I have this conversation when, so I do all this textual uh, exegesis at a bar in Paris, by the way, in the book. And I'm sitting there with a Roman Catholic priest talking about all these parallels. And, and just like Justin Martyr, a very long time ago, nobody today can really explain away these correspondences. Mm. And, uh, and Father Francis, who I'm sitting there with in Paris, is very quick to point out, you know, this doesn't mean that Jesus never existed. And John is just making this stuff up. And I would sit, tell to you, I mean, I, I don't think this means, I, I don't see this as John's attempt to dominate the pagan world or even to co-opt it. What, what I see in John, it's the last gospel to be written around the turn of the century, right? This is after the synoptics. Sure. John's language is very, very different, right? I mean, from the very beginning. Again, I like talking about the first lines of things, like the first line of the Bacchae, the first line of John. En earche hologos, hologos, refers to, to Jesus in these Greek terms. I mean, it really is a very Greek, a very Hellenized gospel. It's later in time. Mm. We think it's written to the Ephesians. And in Ephesus at the time, yeah, the presence of the Greek mystery cults uh, was, was everywhere. You, you, you couldn't avoid the topic. And given these, these correspondences, what, what I see is a John, whoever he or she was, uh, writing to potential converts. Um, and you know, this, I think this is unique to me. What I, what I even sense a little bit is John trying to preserve the ancient mysteries, quite the opposite mm. of suppressing them. What I see here is an attempt to actually preserve the magic of the ancient Greeks and specifically the magical wine. So you can go through all the different correspondences about the only son of God and the water to wine miracle and the true vine and the lamb of God, right? The Amnostheo, mm -hmm. the only gospel writer who refers to Jesus as a lamb of God. You can look at all this stuff and say, okay, it's interesting. But the most interesting part, and the only reason I talk about any of this, is because what I think John was really trying to do was to was to unite the the pagan Greek uh, wine of Dionysus with the Christian Eucharist. And, and I point to a couple lines in there. I'm not going to get too wonky, but in John 6:54, there's some really weird vocabulary, and it's quite the opposite of trying to dominate or erase the pagans. Mm. I think John is reaching out to pagans by saying this in Greek, which in English means, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's in the present tense, has mm. immortality, right? So of all the things we're told to do in the Gospels, in John 6, 54, it's pretty damn clear that you don't achieve salvation by praying to God, you don't achieve it by accepting the Lord Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You achieve salvation, immortality, by drinking blood. And the word he uses for eating the flesh, trogon, is only used in John. It does not mean to eat flesh. It means to munch, to gnaw, mm. to rip something off the bone in a bloody mess. It's the exact imagery that we have in Euripides 500 years earlier, right? In these mm. Dionysian mysteries, the same Dionysian mysteries that were still in Ephesus in 100 AD. By using that word trogon, John is, is, I mean, it's really graphic, explicit language. It's the kind of thing that the Minads, the followers of Dionysus, would do to their cows and their goats. We have all this imagery of the of the homophilon uh, charin, uh, which is this, this raw flesh, crazy, bloody mess that the mm. followers of Dionysus would get into. And in that tradition, all this blood is somehow associated with the blood of Dionysus. So you can see how all this stuff yeah. piles up. But the, the basic point is that I think John is trying to unite 
these sacraments and saying, hey, Ephesians, uh, I know you like your magical wine. Here's some magical wine, too. Uh, you don't need to abandon the faith of your ancestors. Here's a, here's a new and improved Dionysus. And yeah. here's the way to preserve the mysteries, which I, I know is controversial, but I'm not saying this was all, this was everywhere. I'm, I'm saying mm. that in certain communities, this would have made more sense than others. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I love it. And, and I'm tracking with you. I, I think it's fascinating. So, I mean, with Dionysus, the concept was that you, if you drink his wine, you you become one with him part of him united or, or you become godlike there was this kind of context in there um which again is very much the parallel jesus is saying hey you drink this this wine it's me and you will become godlike you'll live forever or, or you know we could maybe parse that forever and, and go into it but generally speaking these are two very similar um concepts and so uh, is your hypothesis then that that the Christian faith, that the entry point is that you you take part in this communion event, this Eucharist, this um, feasting, you know, very visceral experience of, of partaking in Jesus through this bread and uh, wine, you would then typically have some form of uh, hallucinogenic, profound experience where you you know, if, if we look at um, people's accounts of hallucinogens today, it's, it's you know, generally speaking, everything drifts away. You, you find an ego that's, behind, you know, the ego drifts away and you become one with everything and you're, you, you're, you are God and you are the universe or, you know, all kinds of experiences like that happen. You know, you, you just become love or all these kind of profound things, which when it's, it's funny because when you do read some of these uh, passages by Paul, by, you know, different authors in the New Testament, you're kind of like, that does sound like someone that's had a pretty intense trip, you know? I think you quoted one uh, passage by Paul, uh, and I was reading it, and I was like, I've never thought about that. He's talking about, you know, he had this vision, he couldn't even tell if he was in his body or not in his body, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds like when I took mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, I think about it. And then he's saying, I could never even begin to articulate what's happened, and I'm like, yeah, because it's it's something that is a whole level behind words. Words are this thing on top of that that are they're useless you can't use a word to describe you know something that isn't it's ineffable um and so i'm like yeah this this now i've read it from the other side of having had a psychedelic experience you know it's not like when i was reading it as a kid i probably would have had nowhere to put that i'm like that does sound like someone that's just taken a handful of mushrooms had this profound experience and is like guys this is i don't i can't describe it but like trust me this is it you know um he's he's running around peddling his uh you know psilocybin um it, so is this the kind of the, the hypothesis in general that, that that if not all of Christianity, certainly there was a sect within Christianity, um, just like there were many different sects, the Gnostic, well, what's become termed the Gnostics, which is a much broader group of many different groups and what became the right. kind of Roman church, a bit more institutionalized. That If not all of that, there certainly was a group that were partaking in some form of mixed wine, having these profound encounters and, and becoming one with God. Uh, is that basically the kind of the the, the point that we're, we're building to that, that you think there's a, a relatively good argument for? I, th- I think there's a good argument that, that the, the, the use of sacred plants and herbs and maybe even fungi was a part. And I don't know what kind of part. It could be a very small part. It could be a minuscule part. But I think it's a part of the story of, of early Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I, I, don't, I don't know where it leads. I'm looking for the scientific data. But when you look through the, the literature and everything we, we've been saying, uh, you, you do find mentions of these heretical Christians 
who use these kinds of things. And the church fathers gave us the clues. Everyone from, from Irenaeus in the second century AD to Hippolytus in the third century AD, these church fathers decided to write down what they thought about these heretics, including right. the Gnostics and others. And already they're railing against their love potions, filtra, their agogima, another word for kind of like this, this crazy potion. Hippolytus is the best one uh, in, in his refutation of all the heresies uh, in Greek. He's talking about the followers of Marcus, who was another one of these heretics. And there were lots that were mentioned in antiquity, from Simon uh, to Valentinus in Rome and to Marcus. Hippolytus gets into really good detail about what the Marcosians were doing, which is consecrating their own Eucharist. Uh, but it wasn't mm. just that. It was a very magical Eucharist where women were allowed to do the consecration. And here's Marcus with his big cup, and he, he ladles out small cups to the women, and then they combine everything again, and it's overflowing in this Dionysian, you know, crazy wine miracle. Uh, and what does Hippolytus say? He uses the word pharmakon in Greek, seven times to talk about the drug that is inside mm. this poem. So when you look at stuff like that, and you look at this Dionysian gospel, and you look at all the ancient Greek literature for them spiking wine, it begs the question, how widespread was this tradition? And what mm. does it all mean? Uh, frankly, no one has the answer. I mean, we are just beginning to look into this from a scientific vantage. The, the literature mm. has always been there, and we know that visionary experiences are a huge part of all religions, including the birth of religions, like sure. Moses in the bush and Paul caught up in the third heaven you were referring to, mm -hmm. uh, Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that drugs were involved in those experiences. I'm not even saying drugs were involved in the church, you know, writ large. I do think in some communities, just like there were Dionysian mysteries, we know they existed, and we know this technology existed. Um, I'm really excited over the next 10 years to see what kind mm -hmm. of hard scientific data is going to emerge from places like Italy and Greece yeah. and Turkey, because I do think the evidence is there for some yeah. of these communities using a very wild Eucharist. Yeah. Oh, there's so many areas I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're running out of time, but um, the, I mean, the burning bush is a fascinating one because obviously um, there, there are, I mean, is it the acacia tree that um, if, if burned basically would presumably give off some sort of DMT, um, it, which would be inhaled. And, and that is native to that kind of region. And, and I mean, DMT is the psychedelic of choice. If you want to quote, see the face of God it is it's, it's well known that if you take that type of psychedelic, you're going to have a very specific type of um, experience. I've, I've never done this, um, right. but people consistently say you see the face, you meet God. And, and if Moses didn't meet God, I mean, that's the story, right? I mean, he met God. God showed up and was like, hi, Moses, how are you doing? And you can imagine this burning bush and he is following a sheep and there's a burning bush and he gets too close and he starts sniffing DMT. And before he knows it, Jesus, I just met God. Um, but it's fascinating. That doesn't necessarily then mean that all of Israel were high on DMT for like, you know, the next 15, 20, you know, whatever, uh, 100 years. Um, and so you could easily see how someone might have mixed wine in the Christian tradition, how it massively informs them who then has. Maybe Paul did have some profound uh, mystical experience, certainly within his wheelhouse in the Greek um, world. You know, I mean, he was that was his wheelhouse. He spent most of his traveling time in. Um, it's very possible he could have had a, some form of experience like that and then informed church, which wouldn't necessarily mean that everyone had to be doing that. I think that to me was the big hurdle. I was like, I can't get my head around how this becomes 
a practice that people are doing constantly in all these houses, all over the kind of uh, thing, which which isn't necessarily um, where this has to go. I, th- I think you're very open-handed and like, it doesn't have to go anywhere. I don't really know where it, it just is what it is and we don't know what it is. Um, and so yeah. I really appreciate your, your kind of open um, approach uh, about that. I'm trying to think what you just said before, because I didn't want to go down the DMT route, but I, I just thought it's fascinating because people talk about Moses all the time with that. Um, gosh, what were we saying? Well, I can mention what came after. Yeah, please so go for it. I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic when it comes to Moses and, and, and DMT. I, I will say this, which is why, you know, I, 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 my, my goal is to let science lead the way. Uh, so there was a, a paper published in May only of this year. And it's described by the researchers as I don't think you're there in the book yet as some of the, the very first, the very first evidence, uh, if not the first evidence for the use of psychoactive drugs in, I won't say the Judeo-Christian uh, ritualistic tradition, but certainly in the Judahite. So um, at Tel Arad, A-R-A-D, in Israel, uh, there, there was some archaeochemical analysis, just like that crazy wine from Tel Kabri uh, that was released in 2014, just this year. Uh, they were able to analyze the organic remains that were left on these limestone altars uh, from this temple in the Judahite period, 8th century BC, which has been described as kind of a scaled down version of Solomon's temple. Amazing stuff. What did this, wow. uh, what did this altar test positive for? Uh, cannabis. Under archaeochemical analysis. And so it's, it's, it's just this year, but it's some of the very first evidence that we have for the use of these psychoactives. Mm in a very ritualistic tradition in the Holy Land where it makes sense. So DMT and everything else, I have no idea, you know, but you know what? We're going to look, we're absolutely going to look. And if sure. the vessel pops up, if organic remains pop up, you know, uh, I, I want to test it. But as, as of now, you know, we do have these archaeochemical blips on the radar that are just beginning in 2020, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, just now beginning to form this picture and to answer your question, which is how widespread was this? We have no idea. <laughs> we, I mean, you can't get a PhD in the hunt for ancient intoxicants. You know, there, there is, there is no university level course for this. There's no center for this. Uh, this, this is something we're only talking about now. Part of the book is, is to bring in all these academic resources to begin looking at this, both from the humanities and the sciences in, in, in a really disciplined way on a global scale and to have this conversation for the next 10 years until, until we sniff out that evidence. Yeah, I guess I, I just remember what I was going to ask. I was gonna, is, is this, I mean, I know you've spoken, you want to spend another 10 years really going into this and diving into it a bit more. Like, it, does it feel like you've got your hands tied behind your back? As, as someone that is, you know, it feels like I'm reading through your book and it feels like you're constantly badgering professionals in a specific window. And, and you're going, oh, I need, I need information about this area or I need information about this particular intoxicant or I need this particular information about this type of pottery or whatever. And you're having to go to the professional. What research has done? Oh, you've not done that yet? I'll be back in five years, you know? You know, because it's an element of like, I mean, researchers talk about my hands are tied. I don't have the finances to go and excavate this or to research that. You're like a whole nother level where you're like going, hey, researcher, can you do this? And they're going, I don't know. I've not got the money. You know, like, it must feel, uh, do, you, do you get frustrated going, well, the, the evidence is probably out there for a lot of this stuff, that, that, you know, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but will it come about in 10 years? I mean, like, you know, you talk about um, some of these guys are doing this work in the, the 60s and 70s 
And just, you know, the last couple of years, you've kind of stumbled across stuff and gone, hey, just before you die, let me give you some good news. You were right. You know, like, I mean, gosh, that must be like, uh, I know you say, you know, it's, it, 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 that's crazy. You wait your whole life um, for this. Um, and so does it, does it get frustrating? Do you, do you feel like your hands are tied when you look at this kind of stuff? You know, it's weird. Maybe it's my, my own weird biochemistry. Uh, but I, I've never been happier. I couldn't, I mean, I'm so optimistic so uh, for, for, the, for this field. I, I think that it took an outsider like me to, mm. to, to talk to all these different disciplines. And to be honest, you know, part of it is my, my legal training. I mean, you know, as a lawyer, I recognize my limitations and I don't have the answers. So what I do is I call on the expert witnesses. And I think it's what any good journalist would do too. Uh, mm. And, and once, once you start you know, cross-referencing all these people from psychopharmacology to neuroscience, to linguistics, to history, to classics, to biblical studies, to archaeochemistry, and then, you know, 10 other disciplines I talk about in the book, you eventually are getting somewhere. But, you know, th this whole interdisciplinary uh, approach in 1978, for example, was relatively unheard of. And I'm yeah. glad that Carl Ruck, who's now 85, is beginning to see some of the fruits of his, of his labor after his career took a nosedive. But, yeah. I mean, I'm, he's, he's also... He's also I told Joe Rogan this. I mean, he's really excited. He's a very happy 85-year-old. He's very, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very happy. I took an interest in this, and he loves all the attention. And, uh, you know, he's, he's not claiming anything dispositive about all this. He just he wants to see the science get involved. And the same thing that I want is just it's, it's so exciting that, you know, to think in our lifetime, uh, we, we may have actual hard data uh, to talk about, uh, mm. which could inform the birth of Christianity. Right. Or the birth of the Judeo-Christian lineage or the birth of Western civilization. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is the reason, but if, if drugs were part of the reason uh, or visionary experience writ large, what an exciting time for us to have mm. the science to actually prove it. Yeah. I mean, we'll finish up on this, uh, just keeping one eye on the time. But um, you mentioned in the book, you know, that there are people in this time period talking about if if a Lucius was to disappear, if this component was to disappear from culture, from society, everything would fall apart. Like, who knows how terrible the world would become? This is the pinnacle that, you know, like, is, this is the glue that's holding this stuff together. And, um, you know, you look at people that have had these, when people talk about the experience of that, it was very similar to when you talk to someone that's had a psychedelic experience. It's very, you know, we're all connected, you know, there's, there's something beyond us. There's, there's meaning to this, there's purpose. And, you know, we don't have to fear death. We can build something beautiful in this world. Like there's this beauty to, to, um, these experiences. Um, and it feels like a lot of our modern religions do the exact opposite, right? They, they kind of, build up all these walls they create these us and thems they cause us to i mean gosh today we're a little bit more lucky because there's a bit more to do about it but for the most part of history we would just wipe out anyone else that had a different religion or a belief or even in our own religion right you go back to the 1600s and catholics and protestants are wiping out each other entire towns right. of each other you know throughout right. all kind of like the bavarian kind of german kind of world um right. crazy stuff um does this does this kind of thing do you see a potential future in which um, religion might be open to some of this stuff? Because to me, I'm like, I, I, I've spent my time in conservative Christian worlds and I help people, I rescue people out of that. That's my job, my day job. Um, I don't see the average pastor going, huh, there's good scientific evidence that this is what was existing in the early church. 
yeah, okay, let's do it. Let's have a, a, a night where we all take psilocybin uh, in a controlled environment and I'll help you walk you through some sort of mystical experience and we'll see where it goes. Like, I don't see a, 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 maybe a few fringe kind of denominations within Christianity or something. I don't know. Um, but maybe me and my wife, like, you know, having some friends around or something. But I don't see that being likely in, in religion. But do, do you see this awakening of what, Lucius was in the modern world do you see that as potential in the future do you see like um because you do talk very spiritually in your book I, I really picked up on it so even when you were talking about global warming you, you mentioned I think you're quoting someone but you're mentioning it as much as it's a very practical physical problem at the end of the day unless the spirituality of this problem unless we deal with the greed unless we deal with um all this kind of selfishness and the individualism and this wastefulness unless we do these kind of spiritual components within the human will never actually fix this problem. Um, mm. Do you have some of that kind of going on in you? Is there a spiritual component to you? Is there a spiritual component to you that goes, maybe I would like to explore this? Because you've also, um, you've mentioned you haven't partaken in psychedelics as well, which, you know, a lot of people are writing about this sort of thing. People go, ah, it's just some guy wanting to, you know, he's just addicted to drugs and he's just trying to write it off his addiction or whatever it is. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about that as we as we kind of wrap up? Like, what is how has this affected your spirituality, your outlook on spirituality? Mm -hmm. So the big picture is, I think this is a game changer uh, on a, on a global level. Um, and what I mean by that is just is the methodology. I think the methodology is a game changer, and it's not just that there is very initial data for the use of these intoxicants in antiquity, including at the roots of Christianity. That's, that's part of it. There's another science here that you've been alluding to throughout, and I've done a bad job of, of, of talking about, which is psychopharmacology. Uh, uh, and over the past 20 years at places like Johns Hopkins University at NYU, these volunteers who go through these trials, psilocybin, do have these extraordinary experiences that can be fairly described as mystical or mystical-like or emotional breakthroughs or what have it. But there's a reason I start the book and end the book uh, with talking about these trials. And there's a reason I start the book with Dinah Baser, who is an atheist uh, who went through the psilocybin trial. And the only words she can use to describe what happened to her are being bathed in God's love. And she said that she had this insight after her ego dissolution and this melting away of who she thought she was, has this insight that every moment is an eternity of its own. And when she told me that, I mean, my, my jaw dropped and my crazy mind thinks of the gospel of Thomas. Uh, when, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is spread upon the earth, but we do not see it. This concept of eternity being here and now. Mm. And then I think about Eleusis and this concept that maybe, this is my spiritual side talking, but you know, maybe there is no afterlife because there is no after, because there's no before. Uh, th th this real concept of the kingdom of heaven really messes with the concepts of time and space and physics and consciousness uh, but if you take a really deep dive into it, which I know that you have, you arrive at this place of timelessness. And these volunteers are talking about timelessness under psilocybin and the sense of this expansiveness and merging with a larger whole and conquering their fear of death, just like in Eleusis, which is crazy mm. if you think about it. Because Jesus is talking about the same thing, about drinking this and becoming immortal. It's crystal clear in John 6, 54. So you take all this extraordinarily circumstantial evidence, which is what I call it in my profession, but then you add the science to it and something is happening. And I do think this is right for Christianity. As a matter of fact, I'll say this, I think Christianity uh, would, would do well 
to consider this at a very serious level. And I mean the Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Protestants, Evangelicals, and everybody in between, uh, because I haven't done it myself, I'm looking forward to a moment 10 years from now uh, where there is the potential, and just the potential, to incorporate this technology into organized faith. Mm. Uh, and the way that would happen is through nothing else but psychedelic chaplaincy. I think this is yeah. something that organized faith should invest in. Not that you're going every Sunday to drink a spiked wine. It's, it's exactly the opposite. You are preparing once and only once in your life after two years, is what I've been saying, of psychological and emotional preparation to go through an experience that could be transformative. Uh, it's, it's great. I mean, I look at the data and I, I look in psychology, I look in pain management, I look within PTSD, depression. I mean, so many areas. Addiction. I mean, it's astonishing. And, and people that are so anti-drugs, oh, you can't use a drug to us, so you'll get addicted. And it's like, have you looked at the data on how this helps people come out of addiction? Uh, it's astonishing. Right. But all of those the, the studies are how do you work someone through that oh you your psychologist sits down with you for six right. hours while you're on this process and right. and certainly if you look at maybe kind of more tribal um explorations of you know things like ayahuasca and things like that you have people sit with you as you take this they, there's a there's a very sacred process in these things and and, and to me I, I know for me I, I mean i've been a christian my whole life 30 plus years i mean i wouldn't label myself christian or i wouldn't label myself anything I, i'm like labels are just not helpful at this point god knows what i am um god knows what god is um but, <laughs> um, but i will say the the few times i've taken psychedelics i hands down every time i would say they are the top experiences i've ever had of spirituality wow ever right. and I've, I've seen people yeah. healed and i don't even know what i do with that but i've seen someone that was born blind at 80 see his wife for the first time after people pray for him and i don't know what i do with it i don't really know i'm a, I'm a data-driven person i'm a science i've got a bachelor's in science i mean i'm like i don't know what that means but that's amazing and, and it points to something bigger than me but i'm still going but the 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 handful of times i've taken something that has taken me outside of myself that and if i had someone that was a journeyman to be able to help me on that journey i have no doubt i could have got much more out of that um and so i i get really excited as well by the by the potential in this and i certainly when i look at the i mean i i laugh at kind of like um some of the the kind of the the crazies of of, of the the early um lsd world you know people like timothy leary talking about like you know dosing the entire us in the water stream with lsd would fix the whole problem um and, and there's some funny rhetoric to that. And I'm, I'm far from uh, saying that we should do that. Um, I think America's crazy enough. Um, but <laughs> there's, a, there's an element there where I can see that the mindset of that, of like, gosh, if people could have this moment where they realize there's something bigger than themselves and actually themselves is such a constructed concept and there is some, there's more going on here and, and we can be a part of something bigger. That's a beautiful vision and a beautiful option. And, and I think what you're doing in potentially highlighting has this existed in our in our history is can we highlight this possibility that that um, that these psychedelic substances have been teachers to us on the path as we've gone, as we've continued to evolve in what we call spirituality. I mean, the whole earth is on some sort of trajectory, the human race um, and have psychedelics informed us along the way. I, I like to think so. I, and, and maybe I'm biased, um, but I like that you're not. Uh, on at least on a on a practitioner level you know having not uh, participated brian yeah. thank you so much i really appreciate you taking so much time to chat to dive into stuff if people want to 
um, kind of track with you. Your book, obviously, The Immortality Key, really dives into this in great depth, even more than I've experienced. Uh, you know, it's how many pages is it? Four hundred and something, including uh, footnotes. I mean, it's four four eighty, is it? It's, it's, it's a monster. I loved it. Um, I mean, but I, I, I'm tearing through it. And I, I'm, I'm a slow reader and I flew through and I, and I was so convinced I was going to make it before this interview, but I didn't. Um, but if other people want to track with maybe, are you going to be posting about what you're doing as you as you process the next 10 years? Are you going to be posting anything? Are you going to be updating people? Or are people going to have to be sitting waiting for the next book 10 years from now? Or um, is there a way people yeah. can track with you? Unfortunately, yes. You know, I, I wasn't a fan of social media until, but I, I realized there's an opportunity here. So yes, I, I am tweeting now uh, nice. for the first time. So you can find me on, on Twitter. I think now Instagram. I'm gonna fix my Facebook uh, and and my website. Uh, I have all my media appearances and uh, uh, what's coming next at brianmurrescu.com. If that's too hard to spell, which actually it's impossible, just go to theimmortalitykey.com. And it'll redirect you back to to me and you can see everything that's going on. Okay, awesome. I'll put links in the show notes and stuff like that. People can um, find Brian on social, get on his website, buy the book, etc. Um, Brian, it's been a real privilege. I really enjoyed this. Um, and, and I just, I love your minds. I love what you're doing. Um, and I, I really applaud you for the dedication of what you've, what you've done. All the while working full time, you know, like working as a lawyer and you, been exploring this whole world like it's it's amazing um we need more people like you in the world that are just so passionate about something and just go after it with a tenacity so thank you well thank you man you're a funny dude i like you too oh thank you all right well i'll, I'll keep you posted as well i'll send you um, a message when it goes out um i don't know if you okay uh, have streams through it she put stuff out but yeah i'll let you know for sure um but yeah well this is a lot all of right. fun man yeah, no, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you giving me the extra time. I appreciate you being accommodating for my uh, craziness yeah. with uh, the builders and stuff. And I'll let you uh, run off to your next thing. I have to uh, run. But thank you, man. We'll talk soon. Right. Catch you later. Okay. Bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Thank you, man. So that was Brian Murarescu. I hope you enjoyed that. There was so much more we could have gone into. Um, unfortunately, Brian is just so busy right now with all these um, opportunities. But I actually just spoke with Brian and we're going to do another um, interview going into much more depth and, and looking at a whole host of other different stuff as well, maybe later on in the year. And so um, keep an eye out for that. I would encourage you, Brian has just jumped on social media, so he's he's putting out stuff on there and, and it's a great way you can keep track of what he's doing and, and, and how his further research is going to go. And so he's over on Instagram, it's just Brian underscore Murarescu and he's on Twitter, Brian Murarescu, one word. I'll put links to those in the show notes um, so uh, you don't have to worry too much if, if you're struggling to spell that and you're not looking at the show notes, it's M-U-R-A-R-E-S-K-U. Um, you can check out his website, brianmurarescu.com or theimmortalitykey.com. And of course, the book is it's really great. I absolutely love it. If you're if you're someone that enjoys history, if you're someone that's interested in this uh, ancient religions, in uh, psychedelics, in any of these kind of things, um, I really recommend. It's a great book. It's a really good read. Um, the Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. Um, and I'll put a link in that, to that in the show notes as well. But you can obviously find that any good bookstore, Amazon, you know the deal. All right. 
that's all we've got. Um, as I said at the beginning of the show, if you want to support what I'm doing, patreon.com slash phildrysdale, phildrysdale.com slash partner. The deconstructionnetwork.com is a free resource for people that are going through deconstructions of faith and want to connect with other people in their local area that have also deconstructed their faith. That can be a very lonely process a lot of the time. A lot of the time we lose connection with friends, family, community, our churches, whatever it is we come from can often isolate us when we deconstruct our faith. And so um, the deconstructionnetwork.com is an easy way to find other people in your local area. Um, there's almost about 2,000 people on there now, and it grows so much every day. Um, and so do check that out. Um, it's a great resource, and it's completely free. Um, all right. I love you guys. I'll see you in the next episode.